evening, everybody. Great to be with you. Last week of the semester, in like 11 days, it will be over, like no matter what. You can, you can handle that. You can do that. Hopefully. I uh, hope everyone had a great Easter. Fun seeing so many of you at our place uh, for Easter feast. Hope however you celebrated, you had, a, you had a great day celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. He is alive. That's good news for us. I also had a great time on Friday bowling. Sweet crew bowling. I think probably the tear, it's my forearm muscle from the bowling. And if you want to know who's the best, talk to Ann Bev. She's, a, she's crazy at bowling. Like just insane, insane bowler. Broke all the records. Just talk to Ann Bev about it afterwards. Uh, we are, and, and also I meant to say this too, don't worry. We are having RUF in spring term. So first Tuesday of spring term, we'll be here for a large group. Don't worry. See you there. Um, we are finishing our conversation on joy, finishing up Philippians. We're not going to the very end of Philippians, but um, looking at the last, uh, the last section, talking about joy, talking about this experience, this feeling of fullness and satisfaction and delight that we are made for and that we spend our lives searching for. I might go down right here. Uh, and and as, as we end, we're ending where we started, seeing that true and lasting joy is found only in and through the Lord Jesus. True and lasting joy is found only in and through Jesus. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about how we can experience joy in, in every circumstance of our life. Every circumstance of our life. So if you have your Bible or your handout or a mobile device, if you could get Philippians 4, 10 to 13 in front of you, it would be great if you have that as we read it together. So Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. He gives it to us because he loves us. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of this night. I do pray that you would be using even this time to fill us up, to fill our tanks, to sustain us through the work that is ahead. I pray for each of these students as they get ready to uh, approach finals. As many of them have already been working on projects and papers and presentations and studying uh, please give them peace. Please help them to draw close to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be at work through your word right now so that we might love you more and love each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I turned 16 in 2001. I'll do math for you. I'm 33 years old. Am I 33? I just turned 33. You would, ne- you would never know from this, right? Um, I turned 16 in 2001, and I was fortunate enough that my parents bought me a new car when I turned 16. It was the 2001 Nissan Xterra. The epitome of coolness, ruggedness, manliness, outdoor savvy, like just everything cool. And when, when you, I understand that these days, you know, now that we're not in the olden days anymore of my youth, the Xterra isn't quite as cool, isn't quite as manly, but I promise it was. And you had this sense when you got one that it was like headed straight for some subterranean cave thing and you were just going to attach a rope to the tailgate and rappel down. That's just what you did when you had an Xterra. And I remember my, um, my parents came and picked me up on my 16th birthday from, from high school and drove me to the DMV so that I could like, get my license then and then I passed the test, thank God, and then I got to drive back 
all by myself in my car for the first time and go back to like third period or whatever. And I remember I had planned what song I was going to listen to the first time. So I had Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction in the CD player. And I listened to Paradise City, first song. Take me down to Paradise City where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. It seemed appropriate at the time. And I just remember how cool I felt. I mean, do you remember the first time you drove by yourself? I, I was pre-graduated, like, restricted licenses. Just me, my Xterra, my manliness, my ruggedness, my outdoorsmanship. It was just awesome. And, and I remember later that week, it wasn't that, I wish it was that day, it was a better story. Later that week, I'm on my way to school a couple days later, and I'm uh, pulling up to the stoplight on Ebenezer Road, getting ready to turn left to go towards Webb High School, and I'm pulling up next to another Xterra. And I'm like, it's my brother. <laughs> like, this is my person. And so I pull up, and I'm kind of getting ready to give them the, like, what's up, you know? Uh, it's obviously going to be a young, handsome, rugged, manly man, not unlike myself. And so I pull up, and I look over, and it's like a 65-year-old woman in, like, a yellow suit and sunbonnet. And as I start to nod, she kind of just, you know, gives me this look. And I just, I was crushed in that moment. And I was like, why don't I have a Bronco like James does? Like, this is terrible. I have the worst car. And I just was filled. All of my high spirits were crushed to this feeling of discontent. Discontent is that feeling of what I have is just not enough. And this is a feeling that we all know, don't we? This feeling that what I have, big picture, small picture, in my life is just not enough. So my, my question to you as we start tonight is where do you struggle with discontent? In what area of your life do you look at and you say, what I have is just not enough? Is it when you look at your grades and your GPA? Is it when you look at your resume? Is it when you look at the interviews that you have or the job offers that you have or don't have? Is it when you look at your body? Is it when you look at your friends and your social circles? Is it when you look at your fraternity or sorority? But what is it in your life that you look at and you think, what I have is just not enough? And we're talking about that because discontent is what Paul is talking about in this section of Philippians. And he is claiming, God's word is claiming that there is a secret sauce. There is a secret ingredient. There is a secret to dealing with discontent. Paul says that in the highs and the lows of life, no matter what happens, he is content. And so we're going to try to figure out tonight, what does that look like? How do we go through the highs and the lows of our life, which we all have, and actually be content with what we have? So we're going to talk about how we have joy in the abundance of our lives, and then how we have joy in the need of our lives. Joy in the abundance and joy in the need. So first, joy in the abundance of our lives. And and I want to try to explain what's happening first in the beginning. Paul's talking about are we so glad that they've revived their concern for him? Here's what's happened. Paul is in, probably in Ephesus in prison. Uh, and in Paul's day, if you were in prison, they didn't, they didn't provide you fresh clothes. They didn't provide you laundry service. They didn't provide you food to eat. You had to provide that for yourself. You had to buy that or you had to have friends give that to you. So if you're in prison and you didn't have friends, you didn't have family close by, you're in a really vulnerable and dangerous situation. Paul had previously visited the city Philippi where he had started a church, where he had made disciples among, of, of many people. And as he's sitting in prison, this guy Epaphroditus has come bringing him this letter from the church in Philippi, letting them know that even though they've had hard times, they have stood firm in Jesus. 
And so he's encouraged by this, and they also sent him a bunch of money. They sent him a gift. They literally took up an offering. You ever been at church, and you got, hey, we got someone, we got a missionary, we got someone in a situation, they take up an offering. That's, that's what the church in Philippi did. And so Paul is sitting there getting this letter of encouragement from his friends and a big pile of cash to help him. He's actually, even though he's in prison, in what he considers a season of abundance. Things are going pretty good. As good as they can be for someone who's like stuck in prison in 70 AD. He's actually in a season of abundance. He's just gotten a windfall of cash. So what are the things in your life right now where you are experiencing abundance? Where are you experiencing blessing? Where are you experiencing fullness? Where are you experiencing plenty? For some of you, your grades are smoking this semester. For some of you... Your friendships are just going great. For some of you, you're dating the perfect person. For some of you, you just got an awesome job offer. For some of you, the hardest thing you're trying to decide is what awesome opportunity to take this summer. <coughs> For some of you, you got a signing bonus. For some of you, you just got elected. Some of you, everything is going great. And so the question is, how do we handle it? What do you do? How do you feel when everything is going great in your life? For a lot of us, we feel content when things are going really well, right? But when we say content, we don't mean content the way Paul says it. We mean a worldly version of content. A worldly version of content is a self-sufficient content. It's a sense that, uh, like, I am handling everything awesome. Look at me. Look how great my life is. I worked hard for it. I earned it. I achieved it. I am entitled to enjoy it. This is actually a form of pride. It's actually a form of vanity. It's a form of arrogance and selfishness. That's what self-sufficiency really is. It's that sense that you can handle things in your life. You're doing good, and it's all because of you. Sometimes we look around at our lives, at everything that's good, and it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us feel guilty. It makes us we have to hide it from our friends, from other people around us who are struggling. So if you get an A on the paper and your friend gets a C, you know, it's like you can bring it up, so you just hide it, right? <coughs> We do that all the time. But just as often, even when things are going really well, our reaction is still, it's not enough. I want more. Uh, some of you guys have read the book or seen the movie of this, the, the classic Alexander Dumas novel, The Count of Monte Cristo. It's about this guy named Edmond Dantes. And Edmond Dantes, everything in his life is actually going pretty good. He's getting a job promotion. He's got a woman with a really cool name who loves him. Her name's Mercedes. And things are going, things are going pretty good. Uh, but things take a, a tragic turn. He's betrayed by his best friend. He's framed. He's arrested. He's wrongfully imprisoned. He's beaten. He's tortured. He's left for dead. He's forgotten by everyone he thought loved him. His fiance goes on to marry someone else because she thinks that he's dead. But eventually, Edmund breaks out of prison, and he comes across this famous treasure trove. Chests and chests of gold and treasure, and he becomes one of the wealthiest people in the world overnight. But instead of retiring happily, instead of sailing off into the sunset, instead of just getting back the girl who still loves him, it's not enough. And so the whole book is really this battle within him of can you just take what you've been given and be happy or do you need more do you need your anger do you need your revenge do you need a little bit more 
We do this all the time in our hearts, where even when we look at that 3.8, we wish it was a 3.85. Even when we get a job from this company, we want the job from this company. Even when we're in this circle of friends, we look over and see that circle of friends. They seem a little bit better off, a little bit higher, a little bit cooler. It always seems like it's not enough. Let's look at what Paul does. Paul says this in his abundance. In verse 10, he says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That's his response to his abundance. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul is discovering true contentment. Not, not the worldly contentment, which is the self-sufficient sense that I've, I've done it. I've accomplished it. But true contentment is actually peace and satisfaction with what you have. It's saying, I do have enough. I have more than enough. And the, the way to contentment, the way to that kind of peace and satisfaction in what you have, has actually nothing to do with the thing you have itself. It has to do with your posture towards God. And the way to that true contentment is to cultivate gratitude to God. That's what we do. That's where we go with it. That's what prevents us from feeling self-sufficient. That's what prevents us from feeling like it's not enough. That's what prevents us from feeling guilty is because we remember what James says in James 1, that every good and perfect gift is from above where God is. Everything good you have in your life is a gift from God. He's given it to you because he cares about you. Everything good you've been given is a gift. So that means we got to do two things as we deal with abundant seasons of our life. The first thing is we have to stop and thank God. This is sort of a no-brainer, right? We forget to do this all the time. Have you stopped and thanked God for the good things in your life? And the second thing is that we need to repent of our self-sufficiency. We need to repent of the attitude that says, I have what I have because I earned it, I achieved it, I deserve it, I'm entitled to enjoy it. That arrogance, that advantage, we actually have to repent of that. We have to turn away from that towards gratitude. The way you experience freedom and joy in your heart in the midst of abundance is to cultivate gratitude towards God because everything good you've been given is a gift from him. That's how we experience joy in abundance. Secondly, how do we experience joy in need? Uh, if, if Paul kind of understands what it's like to be in a season of abundance, he really understands what it's like to be in a season of need. Read through 2 Corinthians 11 one time. Paul's sort of telling us a little bit about his story. He's been stoned. He's been beaten three times. He's been given the 40 lashes minus one. They, 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 would give, they would lash you with a whip on the back. They thought 40 would kill you, so they give you 39. It happened to him five times. He's, he was arrested many times, put in prison. He was shipwrecked three times. This is a guy who understands need, who understands poverty, who understands loneliness, who understands despair, who understands being vulnerable who understands being at the bottom of the pit. He knows what it's like to be in need. So where have you experienced need? Where are you experiencing loss right now? Where are you experiencing pain right now? Where are you experiencing poverty right now in your life? For some of you, it's just like these things I listed, only they're not going so great. Grades this semester aren't so well. Those interviews aren't going so well. Your resume seems to be dreadfully lacking. For some of us, our relationships are broken and are causing us all kinds of pain and distress. Some of us have dealt with the loss of a loved one. Some of us have dealt with 
being abused by another person. Some of us have dealt with the regret and shame of the mistakes in our past. Some of us are dealing with the frustration and the self-hatred that comes from the habitual addictive patterns of life that we are engaged in that we can't seem to break out of and we don't know what's wrong with us. And we're feeling our need. How do you react when you're in a season like that? What do you do when you're not feeling like you have an abundant life? You feel like you have a life of pity and need. Sometimes we, we just sink into despair and sorrow. Sometimes it makes us angry and aggressive. Sometimes it makes us jealous. For all we do is we look at what other people's lives look like and we just fantasize in our heads about what it would look like if our life was a little bit better. Sometimes we look for and grab for whatever we can to just numb that pain. We turn to drinking, we turn to sex, we turn to whatever it is to work, whatever it is to numb the pain. Sometimes we try to distract ourselves or detach ourselves and just shut down. Sometimes we just play pretend. Yeah, everything's fine. How are you doing? What does Paul do? Well, he says this in verse 13. This is one of the, one of the great verses of the Bible. I can do all things... Through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. Now, Paul does not mean I can do anything. Paul does not mean, like, because of Jesus, I can sprout wings and fly if I want to. So great is my faith. Okay, that's not what he means. This I can do, like, what that literally means, the Greek translation of that word is, I am strong enough to handle all things. I am strong enough to get through all things. I am strong enough to endure in any and every circumstance. I'm strong enough to handle it. It means the answer is that you can be strong. You can be strong. Now again, we've got to be careful what this means and what this doesn't mean. What this doesn't mean is that you are strong enough to handle it on your own. One of the things that I hear Christians say that drives me crazy, that drives me crazy is this. God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not true. God will constantly give you more than you can handle. He basically promises in this world you will have trouble. He tells us to take up our cross and follow after him, the one who was betrayed, arrested, beaten, and murdered. You will have more than you can handle. Okay, So that's not what it means to be strong. Being strong also doesn't mean that we just pretend like, oh, everything's fine, God's in control. I'm just going to try to ignore the anxiety. Because the truth is that sometimes you can't handle it. And sometimes... Things are not fine. And strength comes because the one who loves you is strong. Strength comes because the one who cares for you is strong. Strength comes because the one who shares all of himself with you is strength itself. There's this Serbian performing artist named Marina Abramovic. She's in her 60s, and she calls herself a performing artist. She's really interested in the relationship between the performer and the audience. And she's done a lot of really interesting things. This is a person who's, who's worth Googling, okay? Marina Abramovich. In 2010, she had uh, an exhibit at the um, Museum of Modern Art in New York City at the MoMA. Uh, and in this exhibit, it was called The Artist is Present, and in this exhibit, they, they blocked out a big block, uh, a big square of this room, kind of in one of the atriums of the museum. And so there was like standing room along the outside, but the inside was, was blocked off, and there was a circle of lights. 
And in the center of room, there were two wooden chairs. And for a hundred days straight, for seven hours at a time, without drinking water, without speaking, without eating, without getting up to go to the bathroom, this woman, Marina, would, would walk up and she would be in this long, elegant dress, went from her chin down to her toes, and she would sit down in one of these wooden chairs and she would fold her hands and she would put her head down. And anyone who wanted to could wait in line and sit in the chair across from her. And the only instructions they were given were, were, were that um, you can sit there as long as you'd like, you may not make any gestures, and you have to be silent, and you have to look back at her face. And so for seven hours a day, for a hundred days straight, people waited in line, and they walked into the circle of light when it was their turn, and they sat down in a chair across from this woman, Marina. And she would, uh, when they sat down, she would look up at them, and she would give them a little smile, and then she would just look at them in the eye. And the people would just look back. And it became this crazy phenomenon. Sitting with Marina became this thing. and Celebrities came to sit with her. Some people came and waited in line dozens of times. People camped out overnight to get a good spot in line like you would to get tickets to a basketball game or a concert. Now, what do you think happened to people when they, when they just sat with Marina, when they just looked her in the eye and, they, and she looked at, her, at them back? What do you think happened? It changed their lives. And every single day for 100 days straight, some people just wept. And often Maria would just weep with them. No words were spoken. They're complete strangers. And they were describing these religious experiences, these spiritual experiences, these out-of-body experiences. Some people sat for just a few minutes. One person came, was the first in line, and sat there across from her also without getting up, without eating or drinking or going to the bathroom for seven hours for the entire day. That's what they did that day. Some people felt pain. Some people felt freedom. Some people felt joy. Some people felt relief. Some people felt, they they felt incredibly moved by this. Why is that so powerful? Why is it so powerful to sit across a table from a complete stranger and just let them look at you? It's because in our lives, we almost never feel like anyone really sees us. We never feel like anyone truly cares about us. We rarely feel like someone sees and then keeps looking and then smiles and then understands and then keeps looking. It's not an experience that we have. It's actually getting harder and harder. You, you guys are growing up in the generation that makes the least eye contact with other people of any generation in the history of the world because of this. People felt seen. They felt known. They felt cared for. They felt like they were in a relationship with Marina. They felt like they were in love with Marina. Being really seen... I mean really seen deep into our soul is one of the most powerful experiences that we can have. No matter what the circumstances in your life, the truest thing about you if you're a Christian is that Jesus sees you. It's that Jesus knows you. 
It's that Jesus cares about you. He looks deep into your eyes and deep into your soul, and he sees all of your abundance, all of your goodness, all of your beauty. And he sees all of your need, all of your brokenness, all of your pain. He sees it all, and he keeps looking. He doesn't turn away ever. Which means that if you want to have strength, If you want to be strong enough to handle anything, what you need to do is learn how to sit in front of the loving gaze of Jesus. That is the only thing that will make you strong. Because as we begin to sit in front of the loving gaze of Jesus, and as we look back at his beauty, his strength begins to flow in us so that you become strong enough to resist temptation. So you become strong enough to extend grace and mercy and love into the world. So you'd be strong enough to go through the highs and the lows of your life with contentment, saying what I have is enough because what I have is a God who sees me, who knows me, and who loves me. And actually nothing is stronger than that. Jesus sees you. He sees you right now. He loves you right now. He sees everything and he does not look away. And he has given you his strength. And as you receive it, you will be filled with the kind of joy that can never be taken away no matter what is happening to you in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you see us. We praise you that you're looking at us now and that you know everything, you see everything, but you are not disgusted. You are not repulsed. You promise to never look away, to never take away your loving gaze. I I pray that you would help us to sit under that gaze, to come to you in worship, to come to you in your word, to come to you in prayer, and to look back at how beautiful you are, and that it would make us strong, that it would give us your strength, so that we could say like Paul, your grace is sufficient for your strength is made perfect in my weakness. We need this this week. We need this our whole lives. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.